Hello, I'm Josephine Burton and welcome back to the Dash Arts Podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. We took a month away from podcasts this summer. I went briefly with my family with some trepidation to southern Spain, where I was met with a real mix of gratitude that we were bringing a little bit of extra cash to the local economy and total fear that we might be bringing the virus with us too. I was reminded of this tension as I listened back to the conversation from our Dash Café in 2019, where we chatted about invited guest workers and economic migrants and relocating members of the British Empire. The evening was inspired by an album that I came across in Berlin a few years ago, The Songs of the Gastarbeiter, a compilation album of music created by Turkish Gastarbeiter, guest workers, in Germany from the 1950s to the 1990s. It's a completely fabulous album, packed with a real mix of music from traditional Turkish arabesque to Anatolian disco folk and crossovers into 70s and 80s German pop music. And the lyrics speak poignantly of the challenges of the working conditions and the treatment of these Turkish workers in Germany. Thanks to the Goethe Institute, we brought over Imran Aita and Brilliant Kulukcu, who compiled the album, sourcing music from there and their friends, parents and grandparents, music collections in the back of their garages. Imran and Bulent treated us to the music and the performance lecture, complete with some sensational pop videos, which sadly we can't bring to life here. We'll play a little taste now from the prolific Jem Karadja's Es Haben Menschen an, People Came To, which unusually Jem sang in German. And then we'll slip straight into the post-show conversation at Rich Mix with Imran, Bolent, Hannah Lowe and Zulita Brown. We hope you enjoy it. Last June, I was in Berlin. One of the reasons I was in Berlin is this: we're part of this project, Eutopia, which is asking what it means to be European, and uh, which is a journey that we'll be on over the next few years, which very much emerged for us out of a referendum result. Um, but we've been asking this question as I, as I have travelled and my colleagues have travelled across Europe and met some extraordinary artists. And I was in, June, in, in Berlin in June wanting to uh, understand um, what Europe looked like to the migrants, uh, not just in Germany, but uh, across, across Europe. How can, what stories are... Um, my more recently arrived migrants to the to to Europe. How do they experience, and how do what stories do they tell of Europe? And I was introduced to Imran and Bulent and the songs of the Gastarbeiter, and was completely fascinated by it. And thanks to the Goethe Institute, I wanted to bring them to London. But what also happened, which was totally wonderful, was um, as I went to Germany and I met the and I heard about these stories of the Gastarbeiter. In the news at home last year, as we also know, we know so well, with the similar, well, the stories of the, the challenges for the Windrush generation of li- continuing to live in the UK with all the passport issues and visa issues and threats of returning, being, being returned. Um, and it seemed to me there were some parallels with this experience of the Gastarbeiter in other parts of 
Europe, and it wasn't just in Germany, as, as I think uh, Imran and Boulent mentioned. And there were, there were guest workers that came in across Europe, to Holland, to Brussels, to France. And I thought it would be wonderful to uh, be able to bring Imran and Boulent to talk about their project, alongside Zarita and Hannah, who'd be able to give us a little bit more of the experience of their work uh, in the UK, investigating and creating work inspired by uh, their, the Windrush generation and the legacy of the Windrush in the UK. So I'm going to put this mic down and come and sit down. Um, Christina, I'm going to leave it here. Um, so as, as I was explaining, on my, we have Imran on the far right, Zarita Brown, Hannah Lowe, and Vulent, uh, who, who, who you've just seen on stage. And I wanted to start by asking Zarita. Uh, Zarita, I, we met in the September... Uh, when Zarita came to one of our Dash cafes and I heard a little bit about her, the work, the extraordinary work that she's been doing on Windrush 70 in Brent. And I um, would love you to tell us a little bit about that work and whether some of the themes and th the, the amazing stories that we've seen this evening had some resonance from you because of the work you've been doing. Um, okay, so Windrush 70 in Brent, we um, decided to do the project um, last year obviously to link in with the 70th anniversary of Windrush. Um, for those of you who don't know, Brent, London Borough of Brent is in northwest London, um, and it has a very big Caribbean community. And around 10 years ago, the borough, the council marked it. But this year, with it being last year, with it being 70 years, I really felt it was something really special that we needed to be able to capture and celebrate and tell those stories. Um, but I wanted to tell that story... From the, from the people rather than it be a generic sort of academic story. Um, so the way that we framed that story was um, in going out into the community, inviting um, people from the community to come and tell us their stories about what it was like to come to the UK, why they came to Brent, and what their experiences were of, of coming in the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, and, and settling down in life in Brent. And in reference to the work that I've just seen, there are lots of themes and parallels which we can draw around Windrush. The fact that they came as, uh, as workers, they were invited to come to the UK, um, and once they got here, feeling a sense of Britishness, because they felt they were British citizens, they were, British citizens. They were called um, by, by the UK, which was, was they saw as empire. Um, That's quite a, a clear distinction, isn't it? Because yeah. The, the, the Gastarbeiter who came into Germany were not German citizens, where, whereas many, from 1948, people who, the, 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 the Afro-Caribbeans who came from the Caribbean were British citizens. Yeah. So they were British citizens, and they got, when they got here, they weren't treated as British citizens. They were treated as second-class citizens, um, from like their living conditions to working to jobs. Um, and, yeah, a, a, lot of, a lot of the way that they, they felt... Some of that came through also in some of the music that started to be created, um, particularly through reggae in the, U in the UK. But, yeah, lots of similarities that I can see with some of the Should themes. We, while, while we're talking, Christina, can we, can, we show, can we see some of the photographs from Zarita's the show? Fantastic, thank you. So this is some, these yeah. are the images from the exhibition. Um, so this, I don't know if it's worth me talking through no, some I of would, the... Well, I think we can, people can look and yeah. look, we can hear okay. as we're talking. Um, so this gentleman, um, he is the father of um, one well, of the lead singers from Boney M, who live, and he lives in Brent, he's 97 years old. Um, and we uh, did a call out for people to come forward to tell us their Windrush stories. 
We got funded from this from Arts Council, and just as our funding was confirmed in April, it literally was a week before it all blew up in the, in the media about the Windrush scandal. So when we were going out and trying to get people to come forward to tell their stories, they were really, really um, quite nervous about talking to us. Um, we are local government, Brent Council's local government. For this um, community, the distinction between local government and central government, there was no distinction. They just felt that we were going to take their stories, go to the Home Office and find a way to get them sent back. Um, and in particular with this gentleman who... Um, has such a rich history. I mean, he spent over 50 years in the borough of Brent, but um, what was really special about him is that he actually had his passport that he travelled to the UK with, which was a British-Jamaican passport. Um, and, I mean, I had seen one of those before because I'd seen my mother's passport, but many of my team hadn't seen a British-Jamaican British, UK, a British passport. Um, and so we asked him, we approached him to find if we could put it into the exhibition. Um, but he was really cautious. He, kind of, he didn't want to give us any of his paperwork because he felt that we might just give it to the Home Office. Um, and as much as we were like, we're not, we're not part of the council, we, we're not part of the central government, we want to be able to tell your story, he still wasn't really very comfortable. And we didn't want to push that either. We wanted to kind of respect that with him. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he tells a beautiful story of... Um, coming to the UK, getting off the boat, um, going into Portsmouth, getting on the train into London and seeing the, the, the chimneys and not understanding what the smog was about, what the chimney smoke was about, because they'd never seen that. They'd come from this island, which was sun, sun sunshine, sea, you know, you can go to the trees and p pick a mango, coming into the UK where it was cold, grey, um, and just com completely a different world from what they'd come from. Were they similar? Did you hear similar stories all the way through the exhibition? Yes. Um, so there's another lady who came... So he, he came in the 50s. Um, there was another lady that, um, in the exhibition who came in the late 60s. So this lady, um, what we found some really interesting stories. So both um, Norman and also Alison. Norman is an OBE and, she, and Alison's also an OBE. Hers is for services to midwifery. Um, she came um, into the UK in the 60s to do nursing um, and did that throughout all of her whole career. She's lived in Brent um, pretty much all of her life. Um, and I actually found her in, um, in our library centre doing Zumba. <laughs> and um, when we heard her story, we were just completely fascinated by it and really wanted her to be part of this exhibition. And through this exhibition, she's gone on to... She's done interviews with BBC Radio. She's done interviews with local radio stations. She's gone into schools. She's, it's just opened up so many um, avenues for her to be able to talk about her experience of coming into the UK. Again, another couple that they were just in, um, using the services within the library... Um, both of them came over in the 60s. They, they actually met in Jamaica before they came. Um, and they were friends in Jamaica. And then when they came to the UK, they ended up both coming into the same borough. How crazy is did that? You, did you, it's amazing. <laughs> so, the post, so, so tell me about the process of getting these photos. Did you meet them and then it was a kind of portrait project? Yeah, so we met them. We did a, we did a session. We did an open call. We asked everyone to come to um, a culture and conversation session that we ran the first session was extremely hostile. Um, as I said, it was at the back. It was off the back of 
the Windrush scandal. There was lots of people that were feeling very emotional. There was lots of negativity. Again, people thinking that we were going to take their stories and, and, and um, use it against them. But out of that one, and actually, we came away from that session thinking, oh, that wasn't very good. We haven't got any, any good stories. But we needed to do that session. We needed to provide a space to allow people to um, communicate how they were feeling. And out of that session then came people um, like this lady who came forward and said, you know what, I can sit and talk to you about coming to the UK all day, every day. Actually, I'll come back and I'll, I'll sit with you for a few mm. hours. Um, other people invited us into their homes as well. It's really funny because um, the photographer who went into all those homes, by the end of the project, she, was say, she said that there was lots of similarities with Caribbean homes in that there tends to be lots of plastic flowers, there tends to be lots of pictures of um, family both here and back home in the Caribbean. Um, and she actually came over to my parents' house to do some photographs and she walked into the house and she was like, oh my God, if I go into another house, like mm. I've never been into houses that look the same mm. like this. And she's actually Italian, so she, it, was, it was a completely new experience for her coming into the Caribbean sort of like, um, yeah, community. And did you, did you listening to Bulent and Imran um, and their, their projects and the extraordinary music, the thing I was so struck by was the kind of mundanity of the lyrics. Um, and I wondered, as I was, I, mean, I was going to ask you both, but I'll start with Zarita, because Zarita, when I was talking to both Zarita and Hannah about this evening, both of them started talking about music as being a kind of important part of, for different reasons, important part of their uh, association, their cultural worlds uh, and their relationship with Windrush communities and the legacy. And I wondered if you could tell me about your, your dad. Yes, so um, reggae music came to the UK. Um, came to the UK obviously before the wind, wind rush, but the, the defining moment would be 1968 when Trojan Records um, set up in, in Wilson Lane, which is in Brent. Um, and Trojan was set up by um, two Jamaicans, and they were the label here that were bringing in Jamaican music and into the UK. Um, and the first number one hit for Trojan Records was by an artist called David Ansel Collins. It was a double barrel. And um, my dad was part of the David, David Ansel Collins band. So he came to the UK in 1971 as part of the Trojan music um, dynasty. And, um, yeah, so I grew up with a lot of the reggae legends around me. But one of the things about, about I suppose, that was a defining moment, I think, in terms of, like, the Windrush community coming over and... Um, celebrating and maybe giving back part of that that culture because out of Trojan, then you start that then you started to see different musical genres. So you had the Trojan music, which was like the reggae from the Jamaicans, and then you started to see British reggae music being created by second generation. So bands like Steel Pulse coming out of Handsworth, and then also in the 80s, and you start to see some of the political things starting to come into play. A lot of riots, a lot of like the uprising. I suppose that second generation saying we're just not we're not prepared to deal with the racism and you know all the stuff that's happening to us. And the music then started to reflect that as well. And then through that, um, you then move to another genre which was lovers rock, which again is British-based reggae. And then again, then you start moving into different forms now, which are influenced by more sort of dance music, bringing us up to modern day to some of the music that you hear now. 
But do you, did you? I mean, I, I guess it's way to bring in Hannah as well. But did did the was the lyric? I mean, it was, I was really struck um, from the, almost from the off this sort of this sense of you brought me here. I came here and I've got no money and I you know and they, they don't really want me here and why did I come? And they're, they're immediately in the, the lyrics from very early on in the fifties and the sixties of the, from the your presentation, they were already expressing some sense of discontent and frustration. And I was it? Did we, are there parallels in the kind of in the, the kind of British Jamaican communities and Britain Trinidad and Tobago? communities here at that time uh, well I would say that is a significant difference actually right. is that um, hello everyone by the Hannah, way hi you. I'm Hannah and um, it was really just so fascinating hearing you guys giving your presentation I was just drawing on so many parallels but also differences between um, the Caribbean diaspora I guess it's is it worth me saying that my dad was Jamaican which is why I'm here everyone's looking at me thinking really <laughs> but in fact actually when I used to live in Brixton uh as a Jamaican guy that was always down in the street and I used to come down and he would always shout after me, hey, Polish, Polish, rather. I was like, no, I'm half Jamaican like you. My mother was English. So my dad was very much part of that Windrush generation as Rita's father was. And that generation, having been brought up under the, um, the discourses of the empire where they were taught to admire um, and venerate everything that was British and believe also um, at the same time simultaneously in their own Britishness mm. and to have citizenship conferred on them, um, it's difficult to explain the trauma that community would have felt um, encountering the conditions in post-war Britain where they were actually not welcome at all. And that institutional was institutional discrimination and popular racism on the street. It went from everything, from housing, I'm sure you're aware of that, but also like huge de-skilling in the labour market. So actually, to come to Britain from, say, Jamaica, you actually needed a bit of money. And a lot of these people from middle-class families and were skilled workers, but they were hugely de-skilled in Britain into the factories. That was another parallel, I thought, with the kind of Turkish diaspora to Germany to do the work that really no one else, did, else wanted to do. Um, and they did not talk about it and they were not asked about it either. I think that's really crucial to understand that, that there was no interest in memorialising those experiences until black community historians started perhaps that kind of inquiry in the 1980s. And that's the genesis of why we know about Windrush, because the work of those community historians eventually um, was given, under Blair's government, really, it was kind of Blair's promotion of multiculturalism that um, augmented that kind of archiving work that black historians were doing and brought Windrush into the public imagination. I think it's important to know that Windrush isn't some kind of history that is true, given to us on a plate, like we've already, always, always known about Windrush. Windrush becomes um, significant in the British historical imagination in or around 1998. That's the 50th anniversary of its arrival. And that's when people started asking that generation to talk and then slowly that generation began to talk. But you were, I mean, it's very interesting to hear those anecdotes about the Windrush scandal, meaning that people didn't want to talk. And certainly my father never spoke about his upbringing in Jamaica, about his years, the first years of his arrival. He never talked about his experience of racism, although he was undoubtedly been a victim of that. He was just a very silent and stoic man. And another, I suppose that's why I realised another parallel that I thought between the Turkish-German diaspora and the work that, say, I've done as a, as a writer 
and the work that Sarita's done as um, a curator is the archiving of a first-generation experience of the second generation, of the third generation. We're the ones that want to um, collect and memorialise and testify to the traumas of our forebears. And I think I've tried to do that in poetry, um, through to museums, and it was just fascinating hearing this kind of musical odyssey that you, you two have been on in trying to archive vital cultures of diaspora. So before, before we hear you, your poetry, because I'm, I'm really desperate to, I just wanted to ask <laughs> you... I, I want to well, hear it. I want to hear your voice. But, uh, but, but I was, I'm interested in this, um, this idea of the kind of complete difference of the, the approach. And I wondered, is it like a sort of stiff upper lip Britishness thing that we don't talk about it? Is it because uh, the part of the trauma was trauma. that they, they were considering trauma. themselves yeah. British... Yeah. Or was it a language thing? I mean, is it partly because they didn't, the Jamaican, the British Jamaican, they had like, they had the sort of patois, but they didn't have another language that they could hide this stuff behind, like the Turkish communities. And they were only understood by the, by in, in Turk, by the Turkish community. I mean, I think Hannah's right, because when we did the exhibition and we asked, we went, we did this exercise, we went around the room and we said one word that describes your experience of coming to the UK. And the majority of the words were trauma, hurt, upsetting, um, vulnerability, you know, there was nothing really positive. And there's a, it's, it's someone on the slides, but there's this really um, poignant quote that came out of one of the sessions that I, as soon as I saw it, I said, we need to have this in the exhibition. And um, one of the conversations with, with, with one of the participants, they said, we were taught to love the, our mother. How do you think it felt? How do you think we felt when we came? How do you think it, how do you think it feels to know that your mother doesn't love you? Um, and that, for me, was that just kind of summed it up because it was they didn't talk about this. It was like we just get on. We've come here to do a job. Like they're very, they were very proud. About, you know, they didn't want to kind of show weakness. Um, but through projects like this, you get an opportunity to really give them. And that was what was so important about this project was to give a platform for a voice that hadn't been heard to be able to speak in the backdrop of the scandal. I mean, the project was not about the scandal. We'd secured funding before the scandal. The scandal just came and I turned that around and said we need to use this as something positive because Windrush is in the news now for all the wrong, right reasons but it's, it's overshadowing the 70 years of good work that's happened. Mm. So let's use this as a moment to actually celebrate and give you a voice and a platform. Let, let's, let's hear your, some poetry before and then I'm going to ask Imran and Bulent to respond to that, to that point. Um, I feel like silly getting up. No, well, do you want to? Shall I hold the book? No, I'll just I'll, no, I'll stand. Why not? I'll just read what, just one. Yeah. Yeah, just one poem. Shall I read? Well, see how. No, a couple. Well, I'll just read. I'll read two poems then. I'll read two. I'll read um, the first. Oh, that's a. Yeah, that is our tall layer. <laughs> I'm really tall. Thanks. I've forgotten. <laughs> um, I'll read a poem called "What I Know." Um, that is about my. Uh, I suppose it's in a voice of my father or a man like my father um, travelling from the Caribbean to Britain and um, I suppose uh, it uses a metaphor of, of uh, migration as being a little bit like gambling um, but I also use that because my dad in many ways, unlike I suppose um, sort of like the German guest workers coming over to work in factories and we know with the Caribbean workers that came over to Britain of the NHS was often somewhere they were going to or to work on the buses. Well, my father 
never did any of those things. He was a professional gambler. He played poker for a living. Um, and he had a saying about that, which was, um, if you can't win it straight, win it crooked, which gives you a bit more insight into the kind of things that he did. So this idea of gambling kind of informs... And it's another reason I wanted to kind of write about his life, because it was such a kind of unorthodox existence. Um, but the poem is written in four stanzas. Um, it's about... I suppose it's about the conditions back home, the push-pull factors, which are always kind of central to migration. There's uh, somewhere pulling you, um, a country pulling you towards it, and there's, a, there's push factors that are pushing you to go at the same time. And the poem uses four lines from a Theodore Recchi poem. Um, so I'll just read those lines to you first. The shaking keeps me steady, I should know. What falls away is always and is near. I wake to sleep and take my waking slow. I learn by going where I have to go. What I know. At night, you find me at the oil lamp, dice in hand. I say to myself, if I throw a pair of fives, I'll give up this life. The hot, slow days of hurricanes, sweet reek of banana rot, black fruit on the vine. I want another hand of chances. I grip the dice and blow a gust of luck into my fist. I'm dreaming of England. Yes, work. Yes, women. Riches. I shake these bone cubes hard. Let go. This shaking keeps me steady. I should know. The radio fizzes news across the tenement yard. Dazed soldiers sailing home. A weekend parade, monsoon time coming. I pass dead horses in the field, dead mules. Men sag like slack suits in the square. Talk of leaving starts like rain. Slow and spare, a rattle in a can. My tears aren't for the ship, new places, strange people, but the loss of my always faces. I mean my people, who I know, my places. My sister says, you carry them with you, don't fear. What falls away is always and is near. The ship rocks steady on the ocean. You ever look out to sea and on every side is sky and water, too much, too blue. Thoughts lap at me like waves against the bow, not where I am, but why and who. At night, we use our hours up. Ten fellows flock to someone's sticky room. I roll the dice to deal for shemmy, brag, pontoon. We go till dawn, a huddle at the lamp turned low. I wake to sleep and take my waking slow. Some fellows swore there were diamonds on these English streets. Look hard enough in rain and you'll see them. I squint my eyes, but what I see is sunshine on the dock, my mother's white gloves waving me goodbye. There's no diamonds here, or if there are, they're under this skin of snow. Seems the whole world's gone white. I roll my dice in basements below these English pavements. I guess I'm learning what I need to know. I learn by going where I have to go. I'll read a poem about music because we touched on it. So I suppose to say that um, my dad left Jamaica in 1947, which is before reggae became popular. Um, and actually, like, it was like the rhythm and blues that he was into, kind of American rhythm and blues and American jazz and soul. Um, but I really fell in love with reggae music while I went to university, but it wasn't through Caribbean people. It was through kind of like white 
kind of white middle class people with dreadlocks, if you know the sort. And um, there was a whole group of them at Sussex that were heavily into dub reggae. And when I told them my dad was Jamaican, um, I got a lot of credit for that because they probably thought he was like an old Rastafarian or something, but it couldn't have been further from the truth, you know. So this poem is really about, I guess, those ideas about reggae. I actually went out with one of these guys for a time, and he used to take me to a club. Some of you may have been to House of Roots, Abashanti. Anyone in here ever been there? At Vauxhall, or now it's at the Scala. These kind of big, big sound systems. Um, the poem's called Reggae Story. My father liked the blues and Lady Day. He left Jamaica way before the reggae rocked all night in backstreet studios before King Tubby or Augustus Pablo. But I used to love a boy who loved dub reggae, loved thick lugs of ganja, loved on Sunday nights to cross the river, take me to the House of Roots and Abashanti in the cobbled arches under Vauxhall where the line of Judah decked the walls and stacks of speakers pumped electric bass, a single bulb above the smoky haze and on the stage a little dreadlock man like Rumpelstiltskin shouted jar and spun his blistering tunes on a single turntable and shut-eyed men called back over the vinyl jar Rastafari. Next door, the old guys were like wizened goats with yellow eyes, hunched over games of chess and ginger tea below the golden-framed Haile Selassie, King of Kings. That boy didn't know my father was a white-haired, godless pensioner, and reggae music never really got me until I played it on my own. Bob Marley, Uroy, Johnny Clark, even then it came to me like hymns, like Foray's Requiem, Vivaldi's Gloria. That boy thought I had a rasta like Prince Farai for a dad, not the silent island man who sat beyond the bedroom door I'd listen at to catch a woman crooning down a melody. I can't give you anything but love, baby. Um, that was fabulous. Thank you so much, Hannah. And it was, it's, it's interesting to, to think that the, the other perhaps different, so I guess I'm going to, we're going to ask from Imran and, and Bolenta in a minute, is that reggae became a, 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 a kind of form of assimilation, for I presume, like, like, because, because we all did fall in love with reggae. And that was a, became a, a way of us falling in love with the Afro-Caribbean, British, Jamaican communities in the UK. Well, it was one of the things I was thinking when um, the presentation was going on about the guest worker music was whether it had any fan base amongst Germans, um, you know, because reggae, I think, was that kind of bridge in some ways in Britain. But the difference is that reggae didn't emerge in the, under the conditions that guest, this guest worker music emerged in. It was already functioning in Jamaica, kind of anti-colonial, anti-British rhetoric of reggae that was then transplanted here and... UK sound system culture grew out of that um, but that wasn't certainly wasn't just black British people that were involved in that I mean there were, those sound systems attracted well like my older brother for example was deeply involved in those sound systems uh, friends of his from Turkish backgrounds from all kinds of different backgrounds were really into reggae sound systems Arisa probably knows a bit more about it than me <laughs> but um well, a broad it, appeal, essentially. Sorry, you, you, you respond, and then I was going to ask bring the others in. No, I was just going to, yeah, agree. And, you know, going back to the, like, the Trojan, the 1968, when Trojan started pumping out hits after hits after hits. Um, so I was um, at an event in the summer with Dave Barker, first number one hit for Trojan, and he was performing. 
and I walked past um, someone, it was, a, it was a white guy, who was just in absolute awe that Dave was performing. And he turned around to me and he said, this guy's absolutely amazing because this was a soundtrack of my childhood. He actually brought the communities together. And reggae wasn't just for black people, it was for everybody. And, you know, it, I just, I fell in love with reggae because it was so inclusive. It wasn't just about, you know, Caribbeans. I was embraced into, into, into that fold. So. Fascinating. Was there a similar... Were, were there German, were there kind of Germans who became quite enamoured by this Gastarbeiter music? Well, you know, um, a main uh, political difference is that um, Germany refused to be um, um, a country who accepted immigration till the last, I don't know, 10 or 5 years. Uh, so the mainstream, political mainstream and cultural mainstream was uh, sure that they are still um, a national state and uh, migration is a temporary issue. And that's why it came up with this, uh, I would say, um, racist term of, of guest workers uh, because it tells you that they only could be workers and they are guests, so they had to leave. That's the thing. The guests come and go. So, And this changed within the last year. So this is totally different than talking about uh, migration and colonialism or, uh, and the empire, etc. It's totally different. So it doesn't make, for me, uh, very much sense to compare this because it's totally different uh, in sense of politics and uh, even in sense of understanding of what is culture, I would say that still in Germany there is a very, you know, it's not the, the funkiest place for gl global cultural expertise. It's still very, um, yeah, it's very boring in a way. <laughs> and... Um, Therefore, you don't have... I, I told... I tried to give you an example. You know, I was grown up and I, I loved, like... Uh, I was not a reggae guy, but I loved this, uh, as I mentioned, corner shop, etc. There were no bands like that in right. Germany. Uh, that has to do not only because of uh, how migration... Um, how the, f the, the formation of migration was. It was also the understanding of uh, or the mechanism of the cultural industry, of the music industry. So the music industry basically at that time, in, I, I'm talking about uh, before Spotify, etc., it was about selling records and it was about uh, presuming if, is there a market for such kind of music. All this stuff we showed was published by Bülent Manchinet by two or three Turkish music labels, and they were—they didn't love music. They were smart guys. They had a look at Germany and said, "Wow, there are two million Turkish people. They are listening to this weird music. So, I'm going to produce and sell it." And uh, the German didn't see that. And the success of our project is, uh, <laughs> in a way, um, very—I don't know—I won't say cynical, but. It's interesting because all the media guys were like, wow, this was music produced in Germany? I don't believe you. And then you said, yeah, that's your problem. You're ignorant, you're la-la, and then it worked. No, oh, oh, God, I'm ignorant. I have to write about this album. 
So, um, so, and we both we talked about the strategy, like saying, okay, you know what, we go on, we we're going to attack them. We're going to tell them that you you, I mean you by the, especially media people say, you even don't know uh, what what happened in your country. And later on, you know, we played this Atta Janani, this young guy with this uh, singing German. And then uh, there was a, t a TV station and sa uh, they, did a, the, uh, they did a three, four minutes about our album. And it ended with the sentence, I was like, wow. said, if there's been ever a German blues, this is German blues. Mm -hmm. So whenever it becomes like fancy or successful... It's German, you know? And yeah, yeah, yeah. this is... That's uh, That's pretty similar. As Fatih Akin, when he started up as a uh, film director in the beginnings, when he didn't win these awards in Cannes, etc., he was the Turkish-German filmmaker. In that moment, he won the Berlinale. He became the German right. uh, yes. film director. So we both are working on becoming German cultural activists. I think we're doing pretty well. Thanks to the Goethe Institute, you're here this evening. <laughs> I, but um, the other big interest, the, the big difference I would have thought is, was that um, you were talking earlier about, you know, there were lots of records, but the music, when it was heard live, was largely at weddings and kind of parties, so it wasn't a public, publicly consumed art form. You know, in the 1980s, uh, there was now uh, a critical situation in Germany because a lot of people began to think about this guest worker concept and said, wow, they're, they're long-staying guests. When will they leave? And then, you know, they became kids and they had, like, jobs and they become, uh, build up their own business, etc. And the nervousness rage, you know, getting nervous. And, well, this guest, we're still here. Still here. Um, there is a very interesting parallel, though, with, with the British story there, which is although legally the status obviously has been different for um, Commonwealth migrants, the Windrush scandal might suggest to us yes. that these people that have been for three generations in Britain are still being treated like guest workers. You know, and that's the kind of shocking unpalatable parallel, I think, mm -hmm. that I was picking up. Although the histories are completely different, you're right, absolutely right, but Belonging for, for that community, these communities, is still a contested yes. uh, idea, yeah. very much so. Yeah, in Germany, you, you have in every decade, you have a, a new definition of these people. In the beginnings, there were Fremdarbeiter, foreign workers, like before the First World, uh, World War, people from Poland, etc., came, uh, especially West Germany, and worked there in the mine. Uh, as miners, they were Fremdarbeiter. And then we had this Gastarbeiter, guest workers. And then they became Ausländer. Ausländer. And then they became Ausländische Mitbürger in the 80s. In the moment they were... Give us a translation of Ausländer. I try to. Uh, Mitbürger is co-citizen. What? Foreign fellow, fellow, fellow citizen. Foreign fellow And that moment... They started to be, uh, okay, this could be interesting, Ausländische Mitbürger, what do they eat? 
and my mom, I, as I told, I was with Iris at the same school. When we had the school parties, the teacher always asked my mom to bring Turkish food. And once I said, why don't you ask the guys to bring German food? Why does she? So, and after the Ausländische um, Mitbürger, they became immigranten or migranten or something like that. And now we have this very... Uh, and then Just we to have be clear, this is, you, this, is, this is referring to the second generation. Yeah, yeah. And then we have, the, for the second generation, this very funny, people with migrant, Menschen mit Migrationshintergrund, people with migration background. So you have to look at your bag and say, ah, that's my background, cool. And now we have uh, neue Deutsche, new Germans, I don't know, when I die, I'm something different, but it changes every decade. And, and you Germans are anybody, anybody who, whose grandparents were not born in Germany? Uh, you mean in sense of what? I don't know, new, new, you what does are it mean? Always, you are always, always, you are always other, different. Okay. Can I just ask, it's a, it's a kind of um, a blunt question, but what about um, intercultural relationships? Do Turkish and German people get together romantically. You meant sex or something? Yeah, se sex. <laughs> yeah. Ask Bulland. <laughs> I mean, you don't ask someone uh, the ethnicity when you start, uh, start uh, what was the thinking about sex, well, right? I was just thinking that like, do a, you, a key do part you? of the British experience I never asked. has been I never. You know, yeah. the inter, So uh, mixed, mixed relationships. relationships. Yeah, like yeah, there are a lot of. There are a lot of, okay, yeah. yeah so you have, you have to imagine. So, so, we, we, uh, so we both, yeah. So we lift Don't all tell this them that we are. Then, uh, all <laughs> this what we have shown to, tonight, yeah. And so, so uh, we are uh, talking about the, uh, uh, our parents, yeah. And the people who came to Germany, to Europe especially. Not only the Germany is a part of, yeah. It's also a part of, of uh, England is also a part of Europe, but still. And yeah, but but uh, uh, I think the the thing is so uh, how the majority of the migrants, yeah, I will call it this migrants, reflected that from where I, uh, they come from, yeah. So we have a privileged uh, position to talk about this, yeah. So so maybe it's our privilege uh, as person that we are artists, yeah. And uh, what would be if we're not artists? Would be we all fabric workers or workers in the office, so normal people like discriminated from from the other guys, and so and that, that that's the task what we have. So to 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 change the whole community, whole majority of of, of the uh, and and to make the world. Uh, in, in a diversity world, yeah. So, cause the world is like this, but it, what is ruling it, it? It's a mind of from the past, a very conservative mind. So, and we're talking especially about this. So, what we do is uh, uh, also funny, yeah. But it's re really radical political. Yes. In, in in Germany also, cause that, that was the thing why the, the people was so fascinated. Oh, that they can't believe that the, this music has that uh, German people. Uh, Turkish people, pardon, 
and the, the, this tells the mind how the people are going. Yeah. yeah. So, because I can't believe that um, uh, that people who has a migrant background can do something what uh, can uh, fit with the meaning of European culture. Yeah. But what is European culture? Yeah. And where is Euro Europe? Yeah. So, so Europe is uh, uh, everywhere, and 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 the world is everywhere. Yeah. So that's a really, really, really meta metaphoric uh, uh, sentence. But but uh, <laughs> it's like the the Zeit hat immer Zeit. The time has always time. Yeah. So from from Atta, Yeah. And so so so, so I. I, I we have an answer to Hannah's question, but I want to come back to that in a minute because I do want to know the answer. But, um, but to follow up this uh, line of conversation, did the Gastarbeiter, do they consider themselves to be European? Is it even, an, is it even a question? You know, what, this is every question about uh, this issue is very complicated because it is never homogene, you know? There is not such a thing like a Turkish diaspora in Germany. Because in it, you have a lot of diversity in sense of politics. I think this is a thing which, which uh, in, um, in further discussion is, for me, uh, should be more a question of forms of resistance, of political attitudes. And this comes, and that coming to your question is, at that point, Europe is not an issue for these people because it's about trying to build up a new life in Germany. So even, I mean, my parents, they refused, and for me uh, still it's the same, to, to say very in a relaxed way, I'm a German. We don't say this in my generation because, because we had this racist 90s, you know, where we, where, we, where we were witnessing really aggressive forms of racism and people saying, you are not part of this country, go home. And I said, why should I go to Ulm? It's a boring place. <laughs> and, but would you consider yourself a European? Was, you, was that more comfortable? But that depends on what you understand, what is European, you know? Uh, for me, uh, a very turning point in the last year was where uh, the so-called European Union uh, did a sellout in Greece. And this was, you know, as, a, uh, as a, a political decision of a neoliberal concept to just force, uh, to force a government to act in a way that they think that is European. And that has nothing to do with my understanding of, of being European. You can go to Athens these days and have a look what is European. People living on the streets. So it's not my Europe, you know. I don't want to be part of that. I mean, it, obviously, we, in the UK, we uh, one would possibly blame uh, the, the, the non-accession of Turkey to to the EU as part of the reason why Brexit happened. So there, there. It, it, so, uh, well, I mean, I, there was a lot of talk in uh, in 2016 about these millions of people that be coming yeah. into, into Europe from the EU. So, so it's interesting to. I mean, I'm interested in this sort of Turkish. European tension because there is a tension over web of Turkey as a non-European yeah. country. Yeah, always been because of historical reasons, because of uh, also this issue we we were working on. Because you have this uh, well, very decisive thing that millions of people living there and still not really a relaxed part of a society right. still, and and then you know I'm. I don't. I'm. I worked a lot for politicians. 
and I'm still skeptical with them. Because, you know, I heard a lot of things like Erdogan is this, Erdogan is that, and I do agree on this. But on the same time, they're doing business with him, you know. Uh, Madame Merkel is uh, dealing with him on refugees not to come to Europe, etc. So this is, uh, this is m maybe not very precise, but it's always, con in this ish matter of Turkey and Europe, it's always about interests. What is in the interest of, um, you know, say, countries and who have power? And at that, historically, Turkey was always uh, like a ball flipping on this side and the other side. I'm going to, I'm going to um, bring in some questions. I'm sure there are some questions from, from, um, from you all. Um, um, Christina, I think do you have a microphone. Is there any questions for, uh, for anyone here? Please, please ask. I'm just interested in the question around uh, the guest workers in Germany, as in why did they, why did the country allow them to stay on then if they were just guest workers? Like my background is, um, my parents came over, but they were British citizen in that sense, and so they had, did have children, even though they did think of going back. Um, so what, what was it that led to the state itself not just saying that it... For example, in, in Saudi Arabia, there are a lot of Bengali workers there who are guest workers, but they only get five years and they have to go back. So it's, ne it's never been a question. Yeah, this is a very interesting question, and there's a lot of uh, interesting work on this issue, how that happened, you know, that they uh, did this contract, as Bulan told, with these countries and said, okay, send us, like, 200,000 people, and then we distribute them to these uh, places where they are needed. Um, I think... Um, how can it... I think the main reason is that, that the people who came to Germany did, had developed their own strategies to stay in sense of... You know, we had... Uh, in the 70s, we had this very dramatic economic situation like increase of unemployment, etc., and everyone was like, we have to push these people out of this country so we can solve this unemployment thing. And, and they, they, a lot of uh, migrants lost their jobs, but you know what they did? They started to do their own business in Germany. So they, beca they, become, uh, they, become, they, they started up their own business. And then in the 80s, 1980s, uh, the German Chancellor, um, um, Helmut Kohl, uh, said his aim is to halve the numbers of Turkish people in Germany. That was one of his political promise. It didn't work out. Even they, they gave people funding if they leave the country. But that's not What? official. So the, the huh? founding is not official. No, the, the yeah, start, it was official. But official. The, the state said, if, in, you, in the, if you leave, yeah. I give you like... I don't know. It was 15,000 marks. Yeah. But that wasn't official, so they asked them on the office, so do you want to leave? So did you get this money? So And then you leave in one month like this. And then it, that happens yeah. that people, you know, become kids. They start to school, etc. I, I, I was born in 1969. Ah, okay. <laughs> but but, but, uh, but I, I, I would say something... To your question, yeah. So when these people are coming, yeah. So mostly 
the men's come alone and the women's also not so much women's yeah and and leave their families back in Turkey and they come to spots and places where are camps like camps for for the workers they worked in the factory and so and at this time there was a lot of work in Germany so so you can quit uh, this work there and and go to other place and so it was spreading from this spots where they come from the factories all over Germany because they they changed it, uh, geographically or, or also the states in Germany and so and that was the reason why the people spread all over Germany and then in the late in the beginning of the 70s they bring their uh, family their, their daughters sons and women or, or, or husbands to Germany and so on, especially this guy, Atta Janani. So he comes in uh, 76 and so on, start to to speak Mm. uh, German and go to to special school classes where they have to learn German. And so also, especially in my time, we uh, had also extra lesson in in German. So uh, because we was like the Germans, yeah. But in the mind of these people, we, we, we were not so good in the German language, so we have to do this. Yeah, we gone to special classes. Yeah, you know? and did nothing there. Yeah. So sitting there, yeah, really, we're sitting there and and did nothing there. Of course, everybody was speaking German. Yeah, like a German child. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, but but obviously we have have to go there. So and and these are a lot of of, of, of things why the um, uh, the integration in, in Germany uh, didn't fit. Yeah. So till nowadays. Yeah. So. Because uh, it, because uh, from the beginning, yeah, of the political system, when the people get specialized in in, in in their own infrastructure, and so so it was always the topic. So integration, integration, also in in, in the in the political landscape in in, in 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 Germany. I don't know how it was here in in, in, in England. So that would uh, I, I would be interested in the, if 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 you both had the same problems like we uh, when we was young and with integration with discrimination. So, because we we lived that what what our parents lived, and so and that thing was also our parents didn't speak very well G- uh, German, yeah. So we have everything to translate in, in, in when we were childs, everything of from state offices, and so and so we became immediately when we was nine, ten, eleven, yeah, uh, a, a German uh, adult, yeah. So and, and knowledge about the system and the structure of the of, of Germany, and so and so. Now it's our task so the, to, to, to tell this story. So we are the story collector. We are the, we are the historians uh, 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 from, uh, from the ge- generation in, in the past and, and the nowadays. Yes. You know, there's, in Germany there's an obsession uh, in, in, in politics to think that they can regulate migration. Still today... We there have is, the same thing here. there is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in, but in Germany, we are more in this. We are more obsessive. Oh, really? Like, yeah, we have this, and they come, they go. We can pitch that. We can pitch that. Come, we are better than yours, guys. And 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 this, uh, this very interesting uh, question you uh, you 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 asked is a very, for me, a very good example that there is nothing that a state can regulate migration. They try to, but people, and in, I think in sociology there is this term of autonomy of migration. So people 
find new, their own ways, like Bulan translating for his parents, etc. So there's an, always a new concept and new strategies to, let's say, pathetical, to stay alive and to move on. Do you, do you, Hannah, do you identify with this sense of being the historian of the, the, the second generation? Do you feel that you are um, often asked to, uh, to, to, to perform your poetry as a sort of testimony or as sort of a, as a, as a role? I mean, you, you, know, you, are, you are yourself in some way some uh, a physical manifestation of an inter- British integration Maybe. story. Well, I think, you know, in many... I was listening, I was thinking, this is like what... Um, these guys are talking about uh, is um, a kind of lived and practical and very necessary and quite difficult experience. But I'm sure that um, second generation kids in Britain of parents that don't speak English, unlike Caribbean parents, have all these similar things with translation. I've seen that in my work as education and my mum was a teacher and parents, Pakistani parents, for example, needing their kids to translate. There's lots of parallels there. Um, in terms of my own sense of being a historian, uh, it's, I, I suppose what I'm trying, the difference I'm trying to articulate is that it's more uh, of a luxury for me as opposed to a kind of necessity. It was not something I've been called upon to, to do. Um, also, I've not had the experience, because of the way I look, of being um, a victim of racism, which is an essential difference when you racially, you, are not, you cannot be the target of racism if you cannot be identified um, as being of that, of that place. So that's another difference. And I think what is linked to that, I suppose, is my sense, without trying to sound um, like, you know, uh, kind of super benevolent or something is that one of the things, I suppose, that the energies behind my work is that I've felt for a long time a kind of... My dad was so disenfranchised. I mean, being a gambler in the East End of London, it might sound glamorous, but it actually was really dangerous and unstable. And in the end, it took, his, it took a real toll on his mental health. His life, he'd grown up in rural Jamaica with a Chinese father. Did I mention that he was Afro-Chinese? So his mother was black, his father was Chinese very brutal, impoverished life. He left school at eight. He migrated. He was a guest worker in America during the Second World War. That's when the term guest worker was really applied to Caribbean people when they picked crops during the Second World War, as thousands of them did. Um, then he travelled to Britain. He, was, um, he had very little agency. The things, the institutions that he respected, the British institutions like university, he had no access to... Um, And then he had these sort of two shiny kids, me and my brother, who had access to everything. (laughs) Education, right through. I cannot tell you how completely different my life has been to that of my dad. And that came with a sense of wanting to commemorate his experience and give him a voice. He loved, you know, growing up in um, colonial Jamaica, you're taught British poetry by rote. Even if you've never seen a daffodil, you're going to learn daffodils off by heart. Um, And I thought, my my dad was such a bright man, Um, self-educated, a committed socialist, he loved poetry, but he had no agency, you know, to really express those things. So I suppose part of me being a poet was thinking that he might, you know, give him that voice. Did he hear any of your poetry? No, he died before um, any of... He died... The thing is, as well, growing up with my dad, like, I was constantly being asked, is that your dad? And sometimes I'd just say no. You know, when you're seven, eight, nine, it wasn't just racially we looked so different. He was also way older than... And he'd often just got out of bed after a night's poker at the school gate. I mean, the levels of shame. So it wasn't until I was about 
18 or 19, I went to university, started studying post-colonial literature. I kept on doing these modules in like refugee, and I was doing an MA in refugee studies. Bong, why am I interested in this? Still couldn't put it together to say I was interested in my dad's story. And then just as I was having those realizations, he died. And, um, you know, and that has been really the story of my work was trying to... I knew nothing about him either because he never told me anything. So on this long, long journey trying to recoup his story. Um, and the internet has been crucial in that. I should mention that, what the digital, digital world can allow you to do in terms of connecting Finding back them. to places. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, yeah, I do feel like I'm a historian, but there's no obligation for me in that. For me, it's a privilege, right. actually. And, and do you, Zarita, a historian? Um, I didn't, but through the Windrush project, yes, yeah. definitely so. And the project that I'm working on now is around um, celebrating Brent's um, relationship with reggae. Um, and what so with with in terms of Brent, a lot of the reggae artists that came from Jamaica, they came and they resided in Brent. Bob Marley spent time in Brent. Dennis Brown spent time in Brent. Um, so the, the work that I'm doing now is around collecting histories of people that um, have lived in Brent, have worked in Brent, around their relationship with reggae, in order to um, make connections wider, not just in the, not just in the UK, but also actually with Jamaica. Um, I've had quite a few meetings with. Um, Library of Jamaica and Jamaican government that are saying, actually, we don't have these stories wow. in Jamaica um, and we want to work with you to take these stories back to Jamaica. That's amazing. That would be fascinating to see, to see them going back. Absolutely, yeah. I look forward to seeing it happen. Um, I think there's a couple more questions. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to come back to the point about dating people um, because <laughs> I thought there's something interesting there. Maybe, maybe we could elaborate on it a little bit. And I thought it was interesting that you brought it up because I feel like there is maybe a difference... Um, because of the history of sort of black thought also on dating white people and so on, which maybe is quite different to the, to, you know, the sort of relationship between German-German and German-Turkish people. It's a kind of dating pre-platform. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can I just say that I brought it up because often anti-immigration uh, rhetoric is... Um, one of the tropes of that is um, fear of they come over here and take our women. You know, that kind of fear, this sort of sexual, uh, yeah, like invasion fear, certainly in the Caribbean diaspora. That's why I was trying to pr work out if there was a similar thing um, in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell us about the audiences who come to your events. Maybe that's a way in. Is it a mixed, do you have a mixed audience who come well, to see your, to see the... It depends where we, where we, um, where we are invited to. I mean, we had, uh, normally we are like this Bobo German, uh, good mentioned people. Uh, they come and say, wow, wow, interesting, cool. Huh? And, but if you play in a, like, uh, if, if you are invited of a, uh, of a association, of a community, so you have different people. And we both played in a techno club in Munich. So there were 20 guys boys and girls were around 20 dancing to this tr and it was like quite they dancing to this music do they understand what the songs are about because the guy was singing about Deutsche Freunde and they were dancing to it so it depends on the venue on the one hand but you know it is um, the, the, the mo two, two things is very interesting uh, very typical the one Classical uh, feedback is from German Germans and come to us and say, "Wow, thank you! I learned a lot of about my country, 
I didn't know that and, and feel like a bit touched, etc. And the other thing is like sometimes we have people from the first generation, you know, sitting in the first row, and there you, you see it, you know, they're so like, look at these two crazy guys, they're telling our history, and this is very, this is really touchy, really. This is even more touchy than this dating thing. Which we're never going to answer. No, we're not. <laughs> so, no, to so be honest, I didn't get the question. You know what, I think it I didn't so understand. What the, about this, this question with the dating thing? What so, was the question? So mean you uh, ras- racism between relationships or racism who... Uh, uh, Your question is, do they really exist? Is there much in- intermingling with it, within the com- German... Look, with the, I think this is a political question. I would... Yeah, you know, I had, I had once an affair with... Uh, Uh, um, uh, when I lived in Frankfurt with uh, Simone Schwarz, you know Simone Schwarz. The name is programmatic, black. So the guy was working uh, during the apartheid. He was a staffer at the South African Airlines, and I said to her, "Interesting, your father working with the apartheid regime." And she said, "No, he's a social democrat." I said, "Ah, oh, wow." It could, it could be that he's a social democrat and works, and so on. And, um, and we tried, we started to doing this and that, and etc. And I, 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 I recognized that she's quite nervous when I come to her place. She's like constantly nervous, you know. And I knew she has the fear that the dad can come home and see her with this At that time, I had long hair. I thought I was a cool guy, but forget that. And then I said to her, you know, I understand him. I understand him because he thinks that I will take you to the Kurdish mountains and I will take you as a hostage. <laughs> This is what he thinks. And she said, no, he's a social democrat. I said, I don't care he's a social democrat. And then there was a specific moment. She insisted that I should visit her And at the Nordsee, at the, they, they had a place in the, at the seaside. And I said, I don't come because with your father, this is going to be complicated. And she said, no. You know, there is this moment where you say, okay, I'm with you. And he has to go through that. I said, this is not a good idea, Simone Schwarz. But she said, you have to come. I said, okay, I come. And then we come. And he was not really relaxed. I said, guten Tag. I said, Hi. <laughs> And then we had dinner, etc. And I was so smart, I put a friend with me and said, come with me, you never know, etc. He said, come on, he won't kill you. I said, no, but maybe he puts me out for, in front of the door and then I'm alone. He said, are you insane? And then we were eating and then there was this moment, you know, everyone is tired. Everyone is tired, but no one goes to sleep because the fear, what will this Kurdish guy to do with, to my daughter? And I was quite enjoying this. And I said, okay, should we have a drink? And he was like really tired, old man tired. And then he said, okay, let's go to sleep. And I said, wow, he's really a social democrat. And then he asked me and Markus to sleep in the sauna. And I said, you know what, I have really, I would say, I have parents, you know, from Turkey, in your, in your sense, not very modern, uh, maybe a bit... Um, traditional. Traditional, thank you. 
but I think they will never ask you to sleep in the sauna. <laughs> and he said, oh, dann schlafen Sie in der Sauna. And then I said, Markus, come on, let's go to the sauna. <laughs> but coming to your dating question, you know what I did? I slept in the sauna, but two hours later, I knocked on her window and said, open up the window, and I jumped in. Really. I think there's one more question. There's one more question here. So um, my question was about the use of the word diaspora, because you just said that the Turkish diaspora doesn't exist. And I found that really interesting because I was in a conversation with someone in Jamaica at this wedding, trying to make small talk all the time, make myself comfortable amongst everybody. It was a wonderful experience. But I used the word diaspora. And the man, he got so cross with me. And he said to me, I do not think it's a word that should exist. And it does not apply to the black diaspora. It does not exist. And I was really shocked because I couldn't... Um, You know, we talk about it so much. We talk about so many diasporas and there's a word that we just throw around. So I just have always been asking people and I ask my friends around and, you know, you, I got cut off the same way that you said um, when you were interviewing people, asking for photos, people were not so forthcoming. So even amongst my friends, I would ask, why is this? I don't understand. Well, I'm really interested to hear this. I mean, I think, I mean, that, I think I maybe confused. you know, some, other people may know more about this than I do, but, you know, diaspora... As my understanding, I mean, um, I think um, what you were saying was that there's no such thing as a homogenous Turkish diaspora. But my understanding of diaspora has always been that it's a very broad term. Mm. So you talk about, um, well, for example, when you talk about the African diaspora, you might be talking about all different kinds of things. You might be talking about slavery. Mm. Well, that's what I thought, that maybe passage. he felt that it was uncomfortable to talk about it because it had that connotation. Well, you, you might But be talking about all the kinds of different post-colonial movements after independence. But I've, I've always felt that diaspora is quite an academic term yeah. and quite an academically neutral term. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. I've not come across that before. Yeah. I, I, I use the term diaspora, yeah. diaspora because, to me, it kind of sums up, I suppose, the, the, the impact, the contribution, the different, the different waves of what's happened to the community that's come to the UK. Mm. So, you know example my parents are from the Caribbean I'm second generation my children are third generation but they're also mixed heritage as well I would see them coming from the same from the Caribbean diaspora mm. um, so it's not it's actually a word I really like actually yeah, diaspora I, to, to be honest to. I think about my own existence as being like this kind of Chinese diaspora to the Caribbean um, the African diaspora to the new world, which is, you know, the legacy of slavery is there. And then the post-war diaspora from the Caribbean to Britain. Like, it, diaspora, it, it's dispersal, it's movement. Yeah. It's, not a, it's not a loaded word, I but maybe people in the audience may like have other ideas. Which I think is always quite odd. Oh, I'd love to hear what... Does there, there's probably something I don't know about. Yeah. There's someone coming over. Um, I don't know too much about this word, diaspora, but I would say that I feel like it takes away my sense of individualism. So I don't feel anyone represents me. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's how I feel now at this stage of my life. So maybe that's what he meant, that he doesn't want to be thrown into a big, In a big into massive a big melting block. pot. Yeah. That's so, interesting, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Anyone, yeah. anyone else have any thoughts on, on the idea of a diaspora? Yes, there's a mic that's coming to you. Um, before Brexit, I always saw, saw myself as a British citizen, And so that was where I saw myself as. And then since then, 
I've actually been much more interested in my, where I'm coming from. Right. And, and so I actually begin... I like the word when you were saying about this German word that looks back to your ancestry and pulls it into you, who you are now. So something for me about being not just a British citizen, but also part of the Bengali diaspora, you could say, in my own individual way and how varied that can be. So I actually begin to like the word because it, it, it opens up it opens up the discourse it's, it brings me back to the, we had a we had a cafe here in back in september which is the cafe that i met zarisa at when that's exactly what people said on the stage that the romanian comic talked about having to being kind of outed as a romanian now and being having to talk and confront that in his comic in his performance and this the uh, the actress who has kind of Czech, I think it was uh, Hungarian and Czech background, Slovak background, is having, to, is having to say that now and talk about it. And actually is finding it very exciting and enriching for her work, um, which is a nice way to bring us back. And I think I, I, um, I'm quite conscious of the fact that we've, we've had such a wonderful show and a fantastic conversation. It's getting quite late. An enormous thank you to Zarita for her images that we only saw a real tiny amount of, but what we saw were so beautiful. Thank you very much. And to Hannah for her poetry and to, to Bulent and Imran for coming all the way for one show. So I hope you enjoyed our discussion. A huge thanks again to all my guests that evening for their contributions, to Imran and Bulent, to Hannah and Zarita. I'll put a link to Zarita's exhibition and the images in the show notes that she showed on the evening, as well as a link to Imran and Bulent's album. Thank you also to the Goethe Institute for bringing Imran and Brilent to the UK and to Richmix for hosting the live show. And a special thank you to you all for listening. I hope you feel as inspired as I was by my brilliant guests and the conversation. We'll play out the podcast with Jem Karaja's full as Khaban Minchan Am. The team behind the Dash Arts podcast is me, Josephine Burton, Christina Catalina and Natalie Beach. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts or by going to our podcast section on our website, dasharts.org.uk. If you like the Dash Arts podcast, follow the show, share and please leave us a review. It helps us stay visible and we the world know us. I'm Josephine Burton, back in a fortnight with more conversations at the Dash Arts podcast.
Arbeiter gerufen, doch es kamen Menschen an. Es wurden Arbeiter gerufen, doch es kamen Menschen an. Es wurden Arbeiter gerufen, doch es kamen Menschen an. Es wurden Arbeiter gerufen. 